Hi, everybody. Randy Beamer with News for San Antonio. Thank you once again for listening to San Antonio's Voice, the podcast. Every week we get to talk with people all over the area about all kinds of things. And today, uh, all kinds of things in one podcast. We are talking with the city councilwoman about what's going on to fight the COVID uh, virus in her area across the city. And also her personal story is gut-wrenching. Seven people in her family have died of the virus, and I think it's insightful. Uh, Sal Del Cid, our assignment senator, joins us now. Sal? Randy, I listened to the interview, and it's hard to grasp the realness that someone could lose seven family members to COVID-19, but that's the case for our guest. That's uh, Dr. Adriana Rocha-Garcia, Councilwoman of District 4, and she goes into the toll that it takes on a personal level, uh, but also says that it's indicative of what's happening unfortunately, to a lot of people in District 4. Uh, but it wasn't all doom and gloom, Randy. She brought up a lot of the positive things and success stories happening in her district. And I think people are going to find her interesting because she grew up in a Spanish-speaking household in San Antonio. She's the first to go to college, and she's worked her way up to be a councilwoman now. That's pretty impressive. It is, and she's also, uh, she has her doctorate from UT in advertising, one of the first uh, to be in that program, first Latina, I believe. And she also talks about her parents, her her own story, didn't get past second grade in Mexico, but the success story and what they are doing, trying to, to fight not only an image problem maybe of the southwest side, it's kind of a forgotten area, but also some health issues as parts of that area have a life expectancy, you know, 10, 20 years less than different parts of San Antonio. So we talked about that, what they're doing. I think it's fascinating, and I hope you enjoy it. You can like it at the end, subscribe, share it. Uh, Again, this is Adriana Rocha-Garcia, District 4 Councilwoman here in San Antonio. Thank you very much for doing this. Uh, First of all, everything in the news right now is about coronavirus, and we're upticking here in San Antonio. You have seen it yourself in your family, and some people it must be frustrating for you especially who say it's a hoax they're pushing us to to lock down when we don't really need to even wear masks first of all tell people what what's happened in your family sure well um when people say that it's a hoax it's um it's very sad to me because i have personally been hurt um, by loss and my family has been affected and so we have lost seven family members to COVID. Six of them were here in the city of San Antonio. Six of them were in a a zip code, which is the most impoverished zip code in San Antonio. And so uh, when I saw the numbers, when I was seeing the number of people on ventilators and hospital beds, et cetera, it wasn't just numbers, it was names. I could tell you so-and-so is at this hospital. So-and-so is here. And so um, I find it just um, so... uh, disheartening that people still don't believe that COVID-19 is real. And so as as you look at the numbers every day and the mayor and the judge are updating us on, on uh, ventilators available, et cetera, at one point during the pandemic uh, peak, if you will, in uh, June, uh, we had um, 15 members of our family uh, in hospitals. And so they were all at varying levels of, uh, you know, of, of, of need uh, as far as medical attention. 
But it was very hard, right? Because then, then I could think, oh, well, so-and-so just got plasma, so hopefully they'll be recovering. And so, and then we did see it a few days later that they were doing better, but so-and-so didn't get plasma and didn't get a chance to, to get plasma or you just didn't make it before, you know, we were able to do that. And so um, it's been really difficult uh, trying to figure out how to let people know that they still need to protect one another. And so with the whole asymptomatic cases that are out there, we don't know. We don't know who is carrying the virus, and that's the most dangerous part of it. And um, one of the, the things that I keep um, reminding people is that it's so simple. What you can do is just wear a mask. Uh, you know, you might not have to wear it, you know, uh, inside your home if you're living alone or if you are uh, with close family members. But if you're going outside, try to wear a mask. And so I don't know how else to stress that. And I felt it was important. I'll, I'll be completely honest with you. I hadn't shared um, with anybody about my family uh, other than with the mayor and uh, the city manager and the uh, until the council meeting right until the council meeting and so um, in august right? in august on, on august the 13th we had a council meeting and we were talking about how COVID has impacted our community we were going to um, talk about a workforce development issue and so I opened up that day, and the reason that I um, did so is because I thought, you know, people need to um, put names, right, and, and associate people that they know to folks that are dying. And so, and the reason that people are dying and folks that have underlying health conditions like my family members. And so um, I opened up that day, and, and Randy was really hard, and let me tell you why it was so hard. Um, I had drafted my remarks. I always try to draft my remarks ahead of time. I knew exactly um, how I was going to um, deliver the message and, and tie in the social determinants of health, basically. Uh, however, um, about 10 minutes before I spoke, um, and by the way, this was also the day that I was delivering uh, remarks for the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. So I had just done this whole girl power speech, like, we got this next week, everybody celebrate with us. And about, you know, maybe five minutes after that, um, as I was getting text messages from, from women that I know saying thank you and that they're excited about participating, one of the text messages that came in was from um, my priest at church. And um, as I was going through the text messages, I finally got to his message about 10 minutes before it was, it was my turn. Um, and I read it, and one of our church family members had passed away of COVID. And um, this woman, to me, was a pillar in our community. Um, she had been an election judge for more than 30 years. She served her community with pride and respected the church and folks around her. And so to me, that was a big loss. I served with her on the finance um, committee uh, because she worked at the church. And so uh, her and I were, were the ones that you know had to um, come in at, at certain times um, to make sure that, that the finances of the church were, were taken care of. And so it was very difficult that day because here I am, I, I just delivered this women's empowerment speech and one of my uh, women role models from the neighborhood passed away of COVID. And so it really struck me. And although I had you know, practiced my, my speech, I, I, uh, I got a text from the mayor saying, hey, you're next. And I texted him back and I said, I don't know that I can do this. And he's like, why? And he, you know, so I forwarded him my priest's message. And um, 
It was very difficult, um, but I kept going, and I, I tried to not cry, but it was just too overwhelming. I just couldn't hold it, and so um, so I broke down during council. And so, but I, I made it through. I made it through the speech, and I um, got across what I wanted to get across. And it, it was that folks that don't have access to healthcare, that don't have access to um, a good quality of life, are already um, kind of at uh, 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 almost a losing end. Yeah, now talk about what you said there, because you said. I have six family members who have died of COVID. And you talked about the number, aside from that, who had had COVID. That's just amazing. Some people I've talked to say, well, I don't know anybody who's had it. And so it's hard for them to, to really understand the pain and the threat. Um, what has it been like for how many months when you've seen those people pass away and go into the hospital? Sure. Well, let me tell you that we have had more than, at this point, more than 30 family members with COVID. And so it was uh, mostly here in San Antonio, but we have had a few in Mexico. And so um, the hardest thing about it, Randy, has been that I'm an only child and um, I can't hug my parents. So um, the six deaths um, that I was referencing from San Antonio, my six cousins, and then my uncle in Mexico, all were on my dad's side of the family. And so for my dad, it's been incredibly hard, but I can't hug him. I, you know, have to call and check in on him. My mom was calling me really often and saying he's crying again. Está llorando otra vez, right? And so um, I would try to call his mobile and just, you know, pretend that I didn't know and just check in on him because he'd be crying outside. And so it's been really difficult to not be able to hug my dad. But Randy, I also have to keep doing the people's work. And so I have to keep um, working food bank events and, and you know, supply distributions and being there for the community and I'm being extra careful and wearing gloves and wearing a mask and making sure that I protect people but I also have to protect my parents and that means not being able to hug them so my way of being there for them right now is literally stopping by and just talking to them seeing if they're okay a few weeks ago I was really happy because I heard my dad laughing for the first time and so that was so cool he was on the phone with like someone just laughing and laughing about something and I I thought, goodness, I hadn't heard that in a while. And so he's been obviously devastated. And so um, when he would call, uh, I, I would keep in contact with one of my cousins, particularly that way we wouldn't bother all of the cousins. And so she was kind of like my central go-to person. And so she would say, and so-and-so is on a ventilator, and so-and-so is um, on you know oxygen, and so-and-so just got plasma, and so-and-so is moving to um, uh, another area where they're, they're doing better, right? And so... Um, so she would keep me updated. And, and again, she was kind of like the, the go-to. That was on my dad's side of the family. Then on my mom's side of the family, I had uh, one entire unit who had COVID. And so my cousin was in the hospital and I was still able to communicate by text. So I was checking in on him and I was like, have they given you the plasma yet? And so literally like I would just text him every few hours just checking in. And so he was my direct contact. Luckily, none of his family members went to the hospital. It was only him. And so, um, and then I would have to report back to my parents. So the most difficult thing was having to drive over to my parents' house to let them know that someone else had passed away. And so the most recent one was my uncle. And although he was in Mexico, I got the call from my cousins. Um, my cousins and I, we, we, we keep contact, um, you know, to, to let each other know about our parents and how our parents are doing. And so even though they're in Mexico, I still reach out and follow up on, on my uncles. 
And um, the most difficult thing I, I think was um, driving over that day. And when I got there, he was already crying because one of his other brothers had called him to say that um, his younger brother had passed away. And uh, it was very difficult. Uh, and so my son, uh, you know, goes with me every single day to visit my parents. And so he too has kind of like felt like he can't do much, right? Because there's my dad crying, my parents are both crying, and we can't just reach over and hug them. And so we're very tempted to do that. But again, I, I'm trying to protect them. My cousins here are all trying to protect them as well. When they come over, they visit outside, they'll drop off, you know, um, you know, if, if they need food of some sort, or if they're going to the groceries, they go on a grocery run, they'll drop those off for them outside, or they'll come in quickly and drop um, anything off and then leave. Uh, we don't stay too long. I think that's what's been very difficult. Um, the good thing is that we're really good on the phone still. And so we still call them and, um, you know, chit chat with them. And so that's a thing i guess about having a, a big family is that there's always someone on the phone with my parents helping them well now it also you talked about it i believe in the meeting of how covid and we've done stories on it hits different communities harder and people with underlying conditions and you talked about people in your family but people have also kind of dismissed, well, oh, that person had an underlying health condition, almost as if, well, it wasn't really COVID that killed them. And some people say that outright on Twitter or whatever. Uh, what's that been like? You were, uh, how do you react to that? Yeah, well, and, and that's, I think, why I've been trying to push so hard uh, for people to realize that there's multiple factors that affect whether you survive COVID-19 or not. And so a lot of those underlying health conditions, um, if you think about um, heart disease, and if you um, think about diabetes, and you think about hypertension and asthma, a lot of our folks in the city, a lot of the folks that I represent have um, maybe one, two, or three of those things. It's a combination. So that makes their chances of surviving COVID even uh, slim, even more slim. And so um, I think that's been the difficult thing, right? And so, yes, uh, maybe they, they already had hypertension. Um, however, you add something unknown like COVID, and especially at the beginning of the pandemic, and they're already uh, at a higher risk for not being able to survive. So that's why it's important for us to talk about as a community the importance of uh, everyone coming together and learning from this so that this doesn't happen again or the next time that this does uh, something like COVID-19 or another pandemic gets here to San Antonio that we know um, exactly where our most vulnerable residents are and how we should reach out to them. And we talked about a lot in the news about ethnicity minorities but it's not just that it's socioeconomic and it's also the conditions in which people live and are used to living, the, the proximity that is putting more people at risk. Yes, absolutely. So, Randy, if you think of the residents, for instance, of District 4, uh, we have essential workers. A lot of them are essential workers that kept working. They live with a big family. And so um, that means that they had to keep going to work. And by the way, some of them work two or three jobs and they had to keep going to work to put food on the table. Then they came back and they brought COVID with them to their family members. And so um, a lot of our families are mixed families that have their grandparents living with them as well. And so um, when we think of how this affects uh, the death rate in the elderly population has been higher, 
then we can see why we need to protect everybody because we're all in it together. And now in your past, I know you've done some projects about health literacy. And uh, so you know firsthand from research as well as from your family how, and from your constituents here on the Southwest side what that, what that means. Um, how do you get across to people the importance of it, especially here? Sure. Well, health literacy is complicated enough in, in your native language, right? And so add something um, like, uh, well, well, if you don't speak the, the native language, then what happens? How do you understand it? And so um, when I was at UT Austin working on my PhD, I got to study um, with Dr. Michael Meckert, who oversees health communication uh, over at UT Austin right now. And so I was able to work with him with Hispanic families who needed that translation, if you will, not just literal translation, but really a cultural translation, understanding how health, um, you know, affects populations. And so, um, so I knew that there was something beyond a direct translation that needed to be done here. And we continue to push for that. Uh, when the beginning of the pandemic was coming, if you will, I knew that a lot of our residents, um, they already experienced the digital divide. So we don't have access to as much um, computer information at the finger at our fingertips, if you will, in our areas. A lot of our population is actually older as well. So they don't know how to access some of this information that others might be able to have access to. And so I um, was able to ask for uh, robocalls. And so we were able to pay for robocalls through our city council um, budget for our office. The city um, was doing their, their own outreach, but I knew that my residents, they were different. And so we needed to focus on them. And so I uh, also did postcards to our residents because our postcards, I mean, our, our residents, they still like getting postcards. I mean, if you think about it, think of this last election season and how many postcards you got in the mail. So they work. And so we need to keep doing that. I asked uh, for door hangers and eventually the city decided that it was a great investment to do door hangers to um, the 10 tracks uh, that were most impoverished in the city of San Antonio. And telling telling them what? Telling them about COVID, um, reminding them what they could do to protect themselves, letting them know that this was um, obviously something that was going to be around a little bit longer than expected, that there was uh, no cure for it just yet, but that there is prevention. And, and so door to door, there's been some door to door as well. Yes, we um, have done. So so at the beginning was door hangers and even now. So um, I'm happy to, to report that there's several city departments that are working together. So not only the health department um, and our, our fire department, but also our department of uh, human services. And so they had a goal of reaching out um, to, I, I believe it was, 75% of the residents in, in these tracks and contact them directly, one, to tell them about COVID prevention, and two, to let them know that there was help available should they, um, one, become, um, you know, or ha- get COVID, or um, as a result of COVID, if their job was impacted, for instance, or if they needed help with rent or utility assistance. And so um, we uh, have been doing that as a city, and so I'm very proud of that work because they continue to see that it's needed. And I'm especially proud that um, our city council uh, has all teamed up together. I've seen some of the the city council members who maybe have um, not uh, seen uh, as much of, of an interest, if you will, Uh, other than in in their areas, now say, 
hey, what about District 4? Why are they at this number? And so it's really good when you have um, champions beyond yourself saying, hey, wait a second, this is something that we need to look at as council. And some of those first maps, and even now, describe to people how it has hit this area compared to other areas of San Antonio. Sure. And so, um, Randy, I'd been watching, and just in general, so I, I listened to a lot of uh, different news sources, and I knew there was something um, going on in, in China. Like in December, I started hearing about something. And so, of course, it's just kind of news at the time, and so we kind of monitor it. Um, but then uh, in uh, January, you start hearing about the cruise ships. And um, it was uh, probably very late January, early February, when um, we got wind and it was rumor that San Antonio might get some of the um, princess uh, cruise ship uh, evacuees from Wuhan. And so I started doing as much research as possible to um, see what was going to happen. And so at the time, it was very tight-lipped. There wasn't too much information that we as local city officials were given. And so um, so one um, Sunday, uh, I, I, it was very early in the morning and I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna wait. I'm calling our federal delegation and I called all but one of our federal delegates and I asked, what's going on? If you don't know about it, you need to know about it and you need to tell us what's going on. And so I'm not afraid to pick up the phone and call and ask. And so I had great response um, across the board from, from um, I mean, uh, Congressman uh, Joaquin Castro called back. I was at church. I stepped away to take his call. Um, um, you know, uh, Senator uh, John Cornyn also right, right away. And so it was great response. Um, Chip Roy, I mean, different people. Um, Henry Cuellar, I'm telling you, it was uh, it was an all hands on deck uh, movement to see what can we do to figure out what's going on in San Antonio. And so um, by the end of that week, um, Senator Cornyn actually flew down and, and met with the mayor uh, and Councilman Perry because Councilman Perry is our military liaison on council and myself because Lackland is in my area. And so, um, and we were able to um, at least get them uh, on board saying, we need answers and we need to be involved. And so um, the, the mayor and uh, STRAC, the South, uh, Tex South Texas Regional Alliance Center have, uh, you know, worked with all of the hospital heads um, and started planning right away. What we do have to um, realize, and I don't think people realize this, STRAC is in D4. And so um, even before the pandemic, um, I got to visit with them and they already had a plan for our hospital beds. So they knew and this wasn't for just pandemic. They just knew, they knew the stress levels. So it was, we were able to adopt um, really well based on their experience and their modeling. Um, and so we have such a great resource and then I'm very happy that they work very well with all of the hospital systems. All of the hospital CEOs um, were at the table as well. And so um, I was happy that there was that, that great response um, right away and because we had that experience, we were able to be prepared for what was coming. It conditioned some people also to know the threat of this and to realize it was here in San, I mean, the citizens of San Antonio. So we may have reacted a little better yes, earlier. Definitely. And I think we were prepared. And, and Randy, I do have to say that um, the residents of District 4 were great. Uh, so there was a, a, a couple of calls that came in and, and they were scared. Of course, you don't know what this is. And so we had to explain, uh, well, they're going to stay on the base, etc. And so we explained the process. Um, but a majority of the calls that came 
were actually uh, worried about our military service um, uh, when it, women and men. And so they wanted to make sure that our military uh, members were going to be protected. And so um, one of them even called and said, can we send them extra masks? What can we do? Can I buy masks and send them? And so uh, it was an outpouring of support from, from D4 for the military. And so we are Military City USA. We have a lot of veterans that reside in District 4. And so I was very um, proud of their response at the time as well. And now the numbers in terms of the people affected here compared to other districts, at one time anyway, I don't know what it is now, was higher and than you would expect. Um, is that because you think of health issues or Definitely. Um, about 26% of our population of our residents in D4 uh, does not have access to insurance. They have underlying health conditions. Um, the, the ones that I mentioned earlier are the predominant ones in District 4. And so um, when we uh, look at a population that already doesn't have insurance, they might be holding back from going because they think they're going to get um, charged at, you know, for, for getting tested, et cetera. And so, Randy, at the very beginning, um, when we started updating the numbers, I was looking at my zip codes and I could tell you, oh, 78236, that's one of mine. 78242, oh my goodness, there's already 300 cases. I need to start looking at this. 78222, know, you name it, right? And in my district, and we unfortunately were some of the leaders of the pack. And now it also drives home a point that we've done stories on over the past few years of inequity. Uh, the, the life expectancy in different parts of town is so different, up to 20 years. Um, and I understand, I believe some of that is in District 4, some of the, the lowest life expectancies. Have we done anything about that? Or is this at least maybe going to get us more aware of that problem and do something about that underlying? So I think that this is an opportunity. I think people are finally realizing what we've been talking about for years. Now it just um, it, it just hit us in, in, in big numbers, if you will. And so we have had so many people reach out. The Bear County Medical um, Alliance uh, reached out to see how they can help. Um, we have also have had Southwest General Hospital and the doctors at Southwest General Hospital explain how stressed they were at a point where they had to fly in doctors from New York. Um, so on average, an ER doctor sees about 15 patients a day. They were seeing 45 patients a day per doctor. And so um, they were um, overloaded on their um, hospital uh, bed count. And so they could maybe say they had beds, but they didn't have enough staff. And so we know that a lot of the residents in districts three, four, and five, which are surrounding areas, also go to Southwest General. So um, they reached out and they wanted to make sure that they shared numbers with um, our representatives. And so Councilman Villagran from District 3 and Councilwoman Gonzalez, uh, Shirley Gonzalez from District 5 and I were able to meet with the CEO and with the team um, and, and learn a little bit from them and see what it is, what kind of advocacy they need at the city level where we can help champion them. And so we've had an outpouring of support even from that. Um, Valero reached out. They gave every single one of the staff members at Southwest General gas cards, $25 gas cards in appreciation of their service. And so um, we've had different organizations uh, also reach out and say, hey, do you need help for Thanksgiving tomorrow? We're doing a big turkey giveaway. We have 300 turkeys um, that we're giving away with uh, with uh, corn and, you know, all of the, the trimmings for our residents. And so this is uh, an entire community that stepped up and said, 
hey, your residents, the residents in the southwest and the south side and the west side of town, they need help and we're here. And I'm, I'm so proud of that work that the city of San Antonio has Coming done. up on a holiday like this, you have to have some concerns. Now, I understand, I'm not sure if it's in your family that they said maybe Father's Day get-togethers could have could have played a part in, in what happened with your family. Yes. Looking ahead to Thanksgiving, what are you worried about? I'm worried um, in general about how um, people have been at home for so long that they're missing that social interaction. And I totally get it. I miss social interaction too. Um, but we also have to remember that we have many more Thanksgivings and holidays to look forward to. And so it's just going to take one small sacrifice. And so uh, if you can do an outdoor event, if you can do a drive-through event to visit um, perhaps somebody in your family who has an underlying health condition, that's the best way to go. Um, we were very concerned, for instance, in the Hispanic culture about Dia de los Muertos. And so November the 2nd, traditionally you get together with your family and you celebrate your loved ones. And so um, I'll give you an example of how I celebrate this year. Usually we celebrate with my family and we bring um, some of my cousins over and we'll talk about someone who most recently passed away. We'll share memories and we will um, do the, uh, the the breaking of the bread, the, specifically the Dia del Muerto um, bread and, and share the pan de muerto. Um, this year I just set up an altar at home and I brought my dad over and he just, you know, visited the altar and said, you know, his quiet little prayer in front of it. And, and then he left, you know, and it was just a quick, he was maybe there five minutes just to see the altar that I set up. Um, what, do, what do you plan for the, your Thanksgiving? For Thanksgiving, I'm going to um, make a turkey at home and then go take my parents uh, a, a plate. And so that's that's what I'm planning to do. If it's not too cold, then I can sit outside and have it with them. Um, you know, I try to stay there only for 15 minutes or less. And so, but I call them all the time as, as much as possible. Yesterday, I dropped off lunch to them. Uh, so I had a, a, a little break in the lunchtime yesterday. So I told them I'm bringing lunch really fast. And so um, I try to do as, as much as possible to still see them. But now as these messages come out, just like yours, there, is, there are mixed messages from officials and a lot of resistance to that. You talked about working with Congressman Roy. This week he tweeted, I'm going to do what I want for Thanksgiving and then retweeted, let me make it clear, I'm going to absolutely do something like that, what I want. Meaning, and people then commented, the nanny state shouldn't tell us what to do. When you hear that, what goes through your mind? It's disappointing, right? Um, so, so definitely. And so um, I understand that, that maybe some folks haven't been uh, hurt personally. Um, I hope that they never um, get to go through so much loss, uh, such as a loss that my family members have gone through. Um, and, and I would hope that uh, they uh, try to inspire others instead to work at, work with one another, uh, one another and look out for one another. So yeah, it's definitely disappointing. Some of the mixed messages, I do believe that we should be listening to our um, medical experts. Um, I do believe in following the recommendations 
guidelines that uh, not only our CDC, but that our local health officials have provided. Um, I think that uh, the governor has um, also done uh, his part in trying to learn and understand before just going to Twitter, right? And uh, sending sort of sorts of messages. And so um, I'm appreciative of folks who um, listen and who understand and aren't just using something for you know political propaganda. Looking ahead with the latest numbers that we've seen that uptick here in San Antonio, uh, a little more concerned about hospitalizations. We have more than 60 people just from El Paso here. Um, and we had a prediction yesterday from the mathematician at uh, UTSA that we could be in trouble in the new year. Where do you see San Antonio in terms of the future right now? We, um, we as a community uh, need, need to realize that we are all in this together. And so uh, continuing to push the message of wearing masks, we actually have um, our GPA staff at the city has started a new campaign called Do It For SA. And I believe in it. I think that we all need to be wearing a mask for the city of San Antonio to continue um, uh, living life as, as close as possible to normal um, as we can, right, eventually. And so so it's going to take a while before we get the vaccine. It's going to take um, a, a few, uh, probably rounds of um, you know of trial and error um, before we are able to um, get to administer the vaccine to, to most of the folks who uh, are most vulnerable. And so we can't afford not to do one simple thing, which is wear a mask. And so I think that that continues to be the message, and it should be. One other way, you, I'm sure you drive home this point, is to describe what it was like not just the fact that they died, but then how you had to deal with that as a family. So different than those of us who've lost uh, loved ones in the past. What was that like when you had, I understand there's some live stream services, there were some simple processions and things put off. Sure, um, so I'll give you um, one of the other tough things that I've had to do is um, my dad wanted to go to the funerals of his um, nieces and nephews. And so, by the way, um, he lost his oldest niece and, and she went with her oldest son. And then we had um, another one of his nieces and her husband passed away. Another one of his nieces and her husband passed away. And so um, for the, the, the first one, um, and again, imagine, and I know that there's, fam there's, there's families out there uh, who the aunt and uncle are, are their everything, right? And so um, let me tell you why I, I am, am, am so fortunate to have had my cousins in my life. My mom was very ill when she had me. She was um, on bed rest before and, and after. And so those cousins, were the ones that took care of me when I was born, like literally changed my diapers and helped feed me, uh, stayed awake through the long nights because I was a crybaby apparently. And so um, they helped me be here. And so, because my mom couldn't. And so my aunt at the time sent them over and they would take turns. And so um, to lose them, um, to, to see my parents through all of that, um, you know, just, um, you know, just loss uh, was devastating. And so um, one of the things that we had to do, so my dad wanted to go to uh, the funeral and I said, no, you don't understand. There isn't going to be a big funeral. You can't go. And my cousins told him, um, my, my first, for, for instance, in, in that, um, 
in that example, um, one of my cousins called him and said, no, no, whatever you do, we're all sick right now. We have COVID. Please don't even stop by our house. Stay away. We're not even going to go to the funeral. It's just, you know, it's they're, they're going to drive by the procession. And so I committed to my cousin to taking my dad the next day. And so to, to visit the grave, and it was so hard. Um, you know, we had to stop by and, and buy some flowers. He went to, to pick out some, some flowers, and um, we stopped by. And, um, you know, just just looking uh, at, at my dad, I, I brought gloves, and um, we held hands and prayed uh, over my cousin's grave. And so it was just so difficult um, because... Well, that was it. Yeah, that was it. And so for my others, um, there was Zoom funerals. And so um, for, for one of the Zoom funerals, I, I brought my parents over to the house and I um, made sure everything was cleaned and disinfected and set up so that they just come and sit down. Um, and they did, and they had to literally watch a double funeral on Zoom. And so that was my cousin and her husband. And so, um, and, and my parents have never used Zoom, right? And so they're, they're not familiar with technology. So then I was trying to say, oh, look, and so-and-so is here virtually. And look, there's so-and-so watching from, you know, from, from this place. And so-and-so is here. And so I was scrolling and showing them, and they could see um, their friends and, and relatives sitting at their own living rooms watching uh, streaming the funeral and it was um, it was very difficult and so um, I, I mean I, I just I just can't tell you how difficult that was and so I never imagined that we would have to do a zoom funeral and then it was a double funeral um, at that and now going through all that with your cousins with your your parents having to deal with that I imagine that's helped inspire you to redouble your efforts to make sure that we are doing what we can in San Antonio and in your district to fight it, to fight COVID. Sure, absolutely. I'm, I'm not stopping. I continue to ask for the numbers. Um, the, the district right now, District 4 that I, I represent, has had 14.2% of the overall deaths in San Antonio. Um, if you look at the districts that have been more affected and have over half of the deaths, they're all of the ones that are most uh, in need. And so all of the ones that have the least insured, that have the least um, access to healthcare, access to quality of life, lowest levels of educational attainment resulting in lowest incomes. And so we know that there's a problem. And so this is definitely an opportunity to show people. It's eye-opening. Unfortunately, these numbers are eye-opening. They're jaw-dropping. I mean, they, you just can't make this up. And I think that that's why, uh, going back to the point, is that we have lost so many people. We have lost more than a thousand people. I think it was at, at 1,300 last count that I saw. And so, um, so people who are still not taking it seriously, I don't know what else you know can can be done to drive the point home that there's people that are in need and people that are suffering and people that are dying from this. And and beyond just this COVID crisis, it also brings up something that we heard talk about a phrase, uh, equity funding in San Antonio. And some people don't understand that they're in their little bubble and they think, well, I want my money for my area. Um, what do you tell them about what equity funding is and what you want for your district on the southwest side. Sure. Um, equity funding has now uh, become apparent 
uh, in its need. And so we have had people reach out from, like I said, all over the city. Um, whereas before people were saying, oh, why are you always, you know, talking about this? And so uh, we need, we have needs, just as many needs on infrastructure on, on our side of town. And so um, I think that this has made us realize that human lives uh, are what we should be investing in. And so, again, we're all valuable um, in, in God's eyes, and we should all be working together to protect one another. And I mentioned earlier that some of my colleagues have really been interested in, in this. And so even for small businesses, so I've heard um, Councilman Perry, for instance, say, well, why didn't all the District 4 uh, small businesses get help? Or I've heard Councilman Sandoval say, well, I noticed that in District 4. And so I hear my colleagues, I hear the mayor say, we need to make sure that we uh, look at District 4 and, and 3 and 5. And so they're getting it, right? They realize that they um, uh, are a part of, of this um, change that I think that can happen. And so I choose to look at the glass half full. And so we have to work together. I'm constantly working um, with our council colleagues. So uh, right now I'm working with um, Councilman Pelias on an initiative for the digital divide. And so I'm not on his committee for innovation, but I'm working with the Consul General and him to make sure that we do something for our area. I'm working Councilwoman Sandoval, who is the chair of the Community Health and Equity Committee. And so we continue to um, champion the need for bilingual information, uh, for flu shots, for eventually a COVID vaccine, uh, for any type of health information. I continue to work with all of my council colleagues on, on different items. Councilman Villagran and I work together on the Workforce Development Initiative with the mayor. And so um, it, it it's going to take a whole lot of different uh, ways to see how to solve a problem, um, but it goes back to equity. And, and so, And yes. you've had strong council people here in the, before. You you succeeded uh, Ray, uh, Ray Saldana, um, but it's still an issue of, it's tough for this district. It's tough. How, how, how tough is it in this area to get development, to get notice, to get funding? Um, some people see all the growth on the north side, different parts of town, booming. Uh, like you said, we need to put the infrastructure money there. And you raise your hand and say, hey, wait, we have needs. How tough is it to get that attention right now? Well, it's very difficult because um, they have that taken care of. They have the health needs taken care of. They have, again, a certain level of um, economic stability. Um, where they can focus on the infrastructure and they have been focused on infrastructure driving development. We have every other need that we have to focus on before we can even start to think about um, how to bring in economic development. And so I think my predecessor, Councilman uh, Ray Saldana, did a great job in, 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 in laying some of that foundation. And so I think he was able to leverage a lot of projects like Pearsall Park, um, where we're at today. And so um, starting to talk about the quality of life and access, and I'm, I'm very grateful to him and the others that have uh, come before him. By the way, I have to tell you, he gave me a call um, uh, about you know a few weeks into the pandemic, and he says, "Hey, I'm just checking in on you. You doing okay?" And I said, "Hey, listen, I haven't found the folder on global pandemic anywhere in the desk. I haven't found a, a binder on uh, how to handle such social unrest or budget cuts." He's like, "Are you sure? I'm pretty sure I left it somewhere yeah. in there." Um, but yeah, so I, I think that that groundwork um, has been there. I think what uh, COVID has done is realize uh, help people 
people realize that our invested in our investment in public health has lacked over the years. And so maybe it's an assumption that everybody's at the same level and they're not. And so I literally have friends that have never visited this side of town. So um, I make it a point uh, to say, oh yeah, well, I'm working from home. If you want to drop something off at home. And so they have to come over here and they're like, wow, you know, I've never been over there. I had friends who texted me after my, um, my, my, my uh, remarks on August the 13th on the dais that said, I had no idea you were going through this. I um, had no idea that so many of your um, uh, family members had underlying health conditions. I mean, you, you, you name it, there's a number of people that were surprised. And so um, there was folks that texted saying, I did not realize that I knew someone who had been so affected. Well, now, for those people who haven't been down here before, describe where your district is and what it includes. You have a lot of land here for development, but as you said, you have other needs you need to address first. Sure. What kind of potential and, and where are you right now? If people want to come down here and explore, what do they see? Sure. So um, Port San Antonio uh, is is one of our, I, I would say, the, the crown jewel of development in our area. So they're doing a great job right now. They have um, employed so many people. Um, they employ 15% uh, on, on their campus. 15% of their employees are from District 4. 22% um, are from dist District 6. So we've got to beat them eventually. <laughs> <laughs> We're competitive on council. Um, but uh, they brought in um, many jobs over the last few years. They're also opening up an innovation center, an esports arena. Like, who would imagine that in San Antonio? And that all um, is still going on despite the uh, pandemic. Despite the pandemic. I mean, I think a couple of days ago, the, the dirt was literally moved to start doing that. And so they continue to do great things. That's one of our, our areas where we can, I think, grow the cyber um, technology, IT, everything right there. And, and, and you know, it, it's great. Um, the other area Area is Texas A&M San Antonio. Now there, I share that with uh, District 3. So literally, depending on what side of the campus you're on, you might be in District 3 or you might be in District 4. So we had an event um, back in, I think it was January, and I said, welcome to D4, because this is D4 on this side of it. And so um, it, it was, uh, it's really neat to see what Dr. Uh, Matson has done uh, with the campus. But again, we're hoping to maybe with this upcoming bond, um, help folks realize that we need some additional infrastructure to build that economic development. Palo Alto College, um, one of the um, top community colleges in our nation, um, is building a multi-generational center. And so we uh, actually last week turned dirt on that as well. And so um, we are excited about the growth that we can leverage with community partners like the ones that I've mentioned, but the city has to do its part as well. Is it a little frustrating to see the development in other parts of town and people talk about sprawl and oh we have this traffic and you would like to get some of that development and those you know you go to a planning commission meeting and there is development after development after development in parts of town and how tough is it to get that here? it's very tough and uh, every single time um, that I see that I ask where's district 4 
how many more in District 4? And so, um, and, and I'm never gonna uh, apologize for asking that question. I think Steph already realized, oh man, she's gonna ask about District 4. Let's make sure we, we, we have a plan. And so I think that um, working together, not only with our community partners to leverage funds, um, but also working with our staff and, and, and helping them see the potential that is out here is important. And so we have had great investment uh, in, in, in Toyota, right? If you think about it over the last um, you know decade or, or plus decade now obviously that they've been here longer now um, they started it for us and I think that that's an opportunity to say hey if Toyota came here uh, yes we are attracting other businesses um, but what do our residents need can they live work and play here and so that's important we um, for the first time ever are uh, going to be uh, there's a, a couple of uh, folks who reached out last week they're going to bring market rate apartments to district 4 that's probably the, the, the first time in decades that that happens. That and going that's going to be right a, a co across the street from Palo Alto College. Oh. And so um, I recommended that they also talk to Texas a because it's right down the street. And so um, I, I could imagine that maybe some students would, would want to have access to a one-bedroom studio or maybe even uh, some of the professors that are at Texas A&M San Antonio. And so um, when I came into office, I, I thought that that was going to be my big focus. And so I was proud probably, um, well, no, I was seven months into the job, and then I had COVID um, become the, the, the attention grabber, right? And so um, the central part of everything that we've been doing has revolved around COVID, whether it be uh, continuing to push um, uh, e the events like food bank events, food distributions. We've been um, partnering with the food bank and actually bringing food to the neighborhoods. So instead of having distribution sites, and, and you saw in D4 that uh, picture of, at Trader's Village the iconic picture that has gone around the world was in District 4 um, at Traders Village. And so we um, continue to leverage our partnership with the San Antonio Food Bank and others. You also mentioned uh, before we started here that restaurants here could use business if people come want to come in from the rest of the area. Where would they go? What parts of the city? What what streets? What roads? Here? Sure. Um, so there are some businesses um, along the Valley High uh, area that have been greatly impacted. And so they have curbside and people are still not coming to them. Um, the businesses along Old Pearsall Road, um, same. So there's literally a restaurant that has uh, at least eight spots available for curbside and everything. I, every time I drive by, there's hardly anybody there. And so I don't know if it is because maybe people are spending less money um, going out to restaurants. Maybe people are scared still um, to go out to restaurants. I um, have made it a, 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 a commitment to go and at least once a day visit one of our, our restaurants because we need to con continue. We need to keep going. And so um, I try as much as possible to visit even some of the, um, the franchises they employ our students. They employ our people. So, um, you know, we try to support as many local businesses as possible, small businesses, mom, mom and pop. But it's also important to go to our um, Bill Millers, our, our, our McDonald's, our, um, you know, not, you know, there's it's 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 just something that we could do maybe, you know, uh, once a month. We know that there's a lot of fast food that's unhealthy, unfortunately. Um, but we also know that uh, there's they're paying tuition for some of our students. Mm -hmm. Just a couple other quick questions. When you talk about students, there's a lot of 
land down there. There was a lot of talk about, and there still is, about Texas A&M, San Antonio, and how much growth can be around that in Palo Alto College. Where are you in that development? Um, and what do you what are you hearing about that's on the horizon down there? We have um, we have been planning uh, we have a growth plan if you will for the area and so we are trying to get a workforce housing out in the area so that is what's needed so as we bring employers we also need to make sure that there's housing available with the housing comes opportunities for retail as well and so um, that's what I hear that is on the horizon and I hope to continue that how much did Toyota bring or has it brought so far in terms of housing and other businesses to this area? We know it's brought some businesses as well to other parts of the area, but how much has it grown here for people who haven't been down on the south side? So um, Toyota has uh, has really been the contributing force for a lot of our, um, our, our neighborhoods to grow. And let me tell you how it's affected a school district in particular. They had to have an entire high school built uh, to accommodate the needs. And so I think that the beautiful thing that Toyota has done is that they have a backyard recruitment strategy. And so they recruit folks from their surrounding districts. And so a lot of the folks in District 4, um, in District 3, they work. They, they, know, they, they work at the Toyota plant or at one of the suppliers. And so not only that, but they've given so much money to our uh, school districts as well in, in uh, terms of um, STEM uh, education. So they literally had, have given trucks so that the students could work on the trucks. Um, they have helped uh, greatly with uh, scholarships through the education foundations. So I think Toyota is doing their part to take care of our community. And for a time, they had either cut back or shut down in the beginning of the pandemic. Where are they in terms of ramping back up? They're, um, they're to my understanding, that they're doing well. They're, they've, they've, they're on um, a, uh, a regular track schedule. They have been making also, by the way, um, uh, the uh, masks, so the full full masks, the... Uh, I, I, I guess. Plastic shields. Yeah, the plastic shields. Thank you, Randy. Um, and so we actually reached out to them because we had one of our nursing homes in the area that had been um, affected by COVID at the beginning of the pandemic, and they asked, hey, is there any way that we can get Toyota to help? And so, of course, we ran it up the ladder and asked, hey, if there's any way, if you still have some available, they would be one of the ones that we'd recommend. Couple last quick questions. Sure. Other things that people might want to come down here for where we're sitting, Pearsall Park. Mm -hmm. uh, this part of it was a landfill, but part of it now is a one of the biggest is it the biggest playground in the city, yes. in city parks? Yeah. The, um, and a uh, skate park. Yes. The Ninja Warriors uh, got to come out here last year, actually about a year ago, probably today a year ago. Um, and they got to run through this, um, this, this track, this amazing track that we have out there. Yes, we have the skate park. We have a lot of skaters out there um, all That's of the awesome. time. Um, we were able to give our skaters masks, by the way. We noticed that some of them weren't wearing their masks. They had forgotten their masks. So we gave them some um, masks as well. And so we happy that they were um, able to wear them and we're also trying to see if we could get a, um, a mountain bike trail so that would be one of the exciting things that I hope would happen here and you said people here call the mountain where the trash was Yes, the locals call it Mount Trashmore uh, because it used to be a landfill. So it's uh, literally from dump to destination. But totally safe. I remember us doing stories on the transformation that it took a while but 
this is one of the showcases really in the southwest side. Yes, and so we um, hope to continue to invest in our parks. We have Camargo Park also in District 4, which used to be one of the classic parks and that people think about, and we need to give it a, a little bit more love and attention. Hopefully in this next bond, we can do that as well. And, and last questions are about you, because you, uh, one of those showcases, you are uh, the first woman in District 4 to hold this office. You just got a national, I don't know the phrase for the, what was that? Federation of uh, Women Federation Legislators. Federation Legislator, of uh, Legislative Women. And what is that like? You are a role model here in this district as well as across the city. Do you feel some pressure? Um, I guess I, I always think of myself as just a hard worker. I'm, I'm just working. And so um, I think that that's probably the best uh, thing that I can do is show people that I work hard because then other people will want to work hard and they'll want to pitch in and help, which is exactly what I think that uh, everybody across the city is doing. Like I mentioned, the Bear County Medical Association reached out. Um, the Chang Foundation has reached out. We have had uh, areas in, in our city um, that aren't from the, the southwest part of town, uh, folks from other areas that want to know how they can help. And I think it's because um, they see that we're ready to work for our people. But you do have a political Barbie over there to remind people that that's kind of a fairly new thing. Yeah, it's so this is, uh, I'm a rookie at this. So a lot of the things that I do, and that was given to me by, by one of my friends who said, oh, I, I saw this and I just had to get it for you because it reminded me of you. Um, and so I think that um, there's not enough women uh, still, I think, in elected office. And I believe that uh, RBG said that there was, she was going to be happy when there are nine. And so recently, I think Councilwoman Gonzalez, or, or maybe it was Councilwoman Viega, and I can't remember which one of them said, when there are 11 we'll have you know and so that would be super cool um, but I'm just um, very fortunate to be um, representing our, our area of town but more importantly committed to working for them and it, uh, forgive me if the question sounds sexist but now again there are more women on the council we had two women elected to the uh, commissioner's court which has been a long time since that happened uh, what do you think that brings to the city and we haven't had for a while well, I think that um, women uh, bring uh, empathy and communication uh, to the table. And so I, I think that we don't hold back uh, when we want to show concern and care. And uh, it's okay to show that we have um, that, that, that concern. And so um, I think that we uh, had great plans for girls empowerment all, you know, 2020. And again, it was going to be the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment and women got the right to vote. And we know that not all women. Um, and so it took a little bit longer for women of color to be able to vote. Um, but as, as women, we were hoping to celebrate these small milestones, right? And then COVID hit and we realized, goodness, there's a lot of other priorities other than, than you know, trying to champion these women causes. And I'm appreciative also of my male counterparts. They've been very good to us. They've been, um, you know, uh, saying, okay, yes, you know, they're, they're right. So yes, we need to focus on this. We agree. City Council is more than a full-time job, but you have a doctorate and you're also teaching. Mm -hmm. 
Where, where are you teaching? Let people know what you're doing. I, um, I teach at Our Lady of the Lake University, and I have been teaching there. This is my 11th year. I was um, as an adjunct. I was doing adjuncting for them, and then when I got my PhD, I got on, on a trial basis as a visiting professor, and then I got offered the um, tenure track uh, assistant professor in marketing position. And so I love it there because my students, um, they're like me. Um, a lot of uh, their parents don't speak English. Um, they come from uh, uh, backgrounds like mine. First um, in your family to go to college. First in their family to go to college. And so they realize that it can be done. And so when they see someone um, just like them there, they realize we can do it. I have one of my students, I'm so proud of him. He's getting a second master's degree. I just learned that um, this this weekend. And so, um, that's so that's like the best part of it all, just seeing that they're uh, able to be successful. You have such a very, I don't want to say very, maybe a different background that people would expect with city council. How do you like it on council and where do you see yourself down the road? Well, I read a lot and so I read everything and so I could literally um, go back and say, well, the minutes for this date said this and has it happened? And so um, I don't see myself as a rubber stamp. And so if I don't understand something, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask a lot of questions. In fact, um, I think staff has uh, learned and has asked, uh, do you have any questions? And they try to prepare ahead of time. And so I appreciate that because they know that I'm going to have um, questions. And I listen to every side of the story. So I will meet with um, people who are advocating for and people who are advocating against issues um, and I try to have an equal uh, number of meetings with these different groups because I need to understand both sides um, but more importantly it's the residents that I represent and at the end of the day that's what drives my decisions it's the residents uh, and what their needs are. And do you like it? Do you see yourself doing this down the road? Um, I love it. I love uh, local government. I don't know that I would be uh, inclined to seek uh, anything at the state or federal level. I just like local government. I think that we can be very effective. And so um, hopefully if the residents give me an opportunity to continue to serve them, I will. What else do you want to say to people right now about either COVID or what you're working on? your chance to, to talk to a camera and people inside sure. of um, Well, I want to let you know that I'm working on this really cool initiative with one of my fellow Longhorns. Um, that, 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 all right, it's always a Longhorn thing with, uh, by the way, the Consul General of Mexico is also a Longhorn, so that's how we get along well. Um, but Beto Altamirano, who is the CEO of um, formerly City Flag, it's Iris now. Um, one of my interns uh, at Our Lady of the Lake, I oversee the internship program for the marketing students. And um, so I get to see their weekly reflections. And so I get to see some cool stuff that she's working on from her experience by reading that. And so as I was reading about her work with them, with Iris, she's one of four interns at Iris, um, I got an idea about uh, an app that I think needed to be created. And so um, a lot of my students, if they were to catch COVID right now, they would probably reach out and ask, what do I do? Where do I go? And so, but they're also really good with apps. And so having information at their fingertips. So I reached out to Beto and I asked, hey, can we do something? Because as I'm looking at the numbers, Randy, we also see that the folks that have the highest level of cases are between the ages of 20 and 44. Mm -hmm. And so they use apps. 
And so it would be uh, nice for us to put together something that they could download and they could say, okay, I have um, these symptoms or, uh, you know, what is the closest uh, location to go get tested or what happens if, you know, one of my family members have COVID or what if I'm experiencing, um, you know, uh, some, something at, the, at my job, where can I go seek help? What about the social emotional support? And so I wanted it to be all in one app. And so, um, uh, so Beto Altamira and the team are working right now on, on doing the app. I pitched the idea to the city manager and he loved it. I pitched it to the mayor and he was all in as well. So um, I was happy that we were able to try to get something going as soon as possible. I also think that it could be repurposed once we have a vaccine for COVID. And, you know, people can just go in and look and see where they can get a vaccine. So you're working on an app to help people who have COVID or think they have COVID as well as the vaccine. Yeah, they? it's basically like a COVID 311, right? So, or 411, COVID information. And so, um, yeah, and so that way they can have access to every resource at their fingertips. How fast, how soon do you think that'll be up? I'm supposed to get an update this week. So I'm excited about it and hopefully we could do it soon. They did the um, um, the, the election uh, app, the one where the... the, the shorter short line weight or whatever it was oh, right. they did it pretty fast so i i'm assuming that we can get it out pretty fast as well and, and now we'll this is it. going to be developed by the city or through your students it, it would be through iris and they committed to doing it pro bono to the city so that's huge and hopefully i think what's most exciting is that they might be able to give it also um, um to to other cities or have other cities across the united states or take it or sell it to them yeah um i have been in in contact with one of my um counterparts in uh prince george's county and she lost six family members to COVID. And so when we look at our, the demographic that we represent, it's very similar and her area might be slightly smaller, um, but um, we have the same uh, underlying health conditions. We share the same types of experiences. And so um, I reached out to connect and, and one offer condolences and to offer any help that we can from learning down here. And so she'll probably be one of the ones also that I recommend, hey, you know, check this out. Um, the mayor and the city manager were very kind and saying, hey, if she wants to talk to our staff to figure out how she can help her folks. Because one of the things that she told me, I'll give you an example, in District 4, 1,400 people have taken advantage of the utility or rental assistance, which is great, great news because they need it. In her county, four of the people she represents have taken advantage of it. And so that is not good. And so she said, well, there's a lot of red tape. And so I said, Wow, we can we can have a, a conversation. We got very innovative about how we can offer help, and so it's going directly to the landlords, for instance, etc. And so anyway, so um, I'm I'm happy that we're also even though it's a time of need and we're taking care of our community, that we're taking a little bit of time to help those across the way as well. And Iris is stands for what is it? Oh, um, that's the name of the the company. It was formerly called uh, City Flag. Oh, okay. So it's a company that some of the people work with that you're... Yes, the, they, they're the ones that actually do our 311 app. So you can report oh, okay. potholes with a picture. And so they're the ones that are doing the, um, the COVID app, if you will. I don't know what it's going to be called. So I'm just calling it COVID app for now. Well, good luck with it. And thank you again for all your time. Appreciate yeah, absolutely. It. Thank you.